Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm talking with Anne-Marie Coburn. Single mother Anne-Marie lost her daughter, 15-year-old Martha Fernbach, in 2013 to an accidental ecstasy overdose. Within hours, she began to write down her feelings as a way to channel her shock and try to make sense of the tragic loss of her only child. Her book, 5,742 Days, The Number of Days Martha Lived, is a real-time account of the first 102 days without her girl, poignantly finishing on what would have been Martha's 16th birthday. After the sentencing of the 17-year-old drug dealer, Anne-Marie publicly forgave him, and over an 18-month period, they corresponded through letters, which Anne-Marie believes aided in her healing. Describing herself as a peaceful protester, Anne-Marie regularly visits schools and prisons to tell her story. In her own words, as I write this, I have been without my girl for 1,121 days. It sounds like a lot, doesn't it? But in the aftermath, time becomes distorted. The pain of bereavement doesn't wear a watch. So to represent my beloved Martha, it is my quest to keep this conversation going in order to save other families from a similar loss to mine. Welcome, Anne-Marie. Hello there. Nice to be here. Nice to have you here. First of all, I just want to thank you for your beautiful book and especially your capacity to kind of share the deepest feelings in real time and and expose that to your readers. I found that very powerful. Oh, thank you. Did you know did you have any inkling that the writing you were doing might become a book at some point, or was it just kind of for yourself at that point when she it, first died? Well, I just <clears throat> was pouring out what was in my head for the first few days, and I was sharing it with family and friends. Um, and then I couldn't stop from there, and it helped me. I realized it was helping me to, to cope with what was going on, so it wasn't really ever planned to publish it until months down the, the line and I, I was reading excerpts back and even I was surprised at, at what, what I had been saying in the early days. And so uh, there, there's a sense of kind of, uh, you know, I've done some writing practices, there's sort of uh, uh, unconscious writing where you just put the pen on the paper and just keep writing. Was it that kind of outpouring yes, for absolutely. you? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It, I, for, I wrote for three days without stopping when I got back from the hospital after she died until my family took my laptop off, off me and said, you have to rest. So it, it felt as if it wasn't even me writing it. it. I felt like the whole universe was kind of channeling through me and into my fingers and expressing this you know, very raw emotion of the loss I was feeling. Could you share with the listeners a little bit just the story of losing Martha, um, out of which all that outpouring came? Sure. Um, I, I can read you a bit from the very first day, if that would, if that would suit you. Yes, absolutely. Okay, okay. Okay, so day one, Sunday the 21st of July. My 15-year-old daughter died yesterday. I watched them trying to save her. They pumped her chest and drilled something into her shin, but I knew she was already dead on arrival at the hospital. They elevated her arms, but I don't know why. Her eyes were half open, and she was way beyond the clouds and stars already. I was calling to her in the same tone I last heard when I gave birth to her, a tone so unearthly and raw that it haunted the entire corridor of medical staff. Two nurses stood by me, I restlessly laid my head on one and squeezed their hands as I yearned for my girl to come back to me. 
I needed the love of strangers, and it was there in abundance. My life goes on from here. The wheels keep turning. They need to, and although my heart is smashed into a million pieces, slowly with all the support and nurturing, I can be glued back together again. You know, I was very struck, Emery, in that um, section that you knew that you would find your way through. Although people do kind of shockingly at first keep living. Yeah. Uh, I've heard a lot of parents who've lost children express about that early time, I didn't know I would make it. But something in you said the fir- very first day um, that that you would. Was that a wish, a hope, or was that really where you were, what you were feeling? I didn't question any of it. It was exactly as it was happening. These are the things I was saying. Um, it was such raw emotion that, you know, you, you can't question it. There's too much to do. There's, there's, you know, there was an inquest. There were all sorts of things going on, on around me. So my writing was my salvation, really. Um, and I suppose it's that fight or flight thing that, we're all, that we all have within us. Um, and, and lucky for me, I decided, or it was decided for me, wherever it came from to fight it every step of the way, to, to fight for my own survival. Does anything in your life previous to her death, uh, looking back, seem as if it, it might have prepared you to respond that way? Or was this something kind of wholly new to you? I had experienced quite a lot of um, members of my family who were very close members of my family, siblings and so on, who had died um, over the years and um, the death of a very close family member when I was about seven and that was the first one. So in my life, death definitely presented itself fairly regularly um, and it's not that that really prepares you for the loss of your only child but in some ways I can look back now objectively and say, well, it did give me some strength to build upon to help me through this. There's no doubt about it. Well, one thing it does is perhaps, because I know this this applies to me, if you have realized that there's no way out of the grief because yeah. you've had other losses and you've realized you have to experience them, there, there's kind of no other way. I think that does maybe jump you forward a little bit into, I'm just going to have to go through this. Whatever it is, I'm going to have to go through it. Well, in our culture, we tend to suppress a lot of things and think that we have to fight bereavement in a kind of way where we're not dealing with it. And I, I did the opposite. I was embracing the bereavement despite the, the abject agony I was going through because the pain was almost, it felt like the, you know, it was equivalent to the love I had for Martha and still have for mm. her. So in that way, that helped me to sort of cope with it. So I did embrace the bereavement. It's in my life. It's very relevant to all of us, not just me. And um, it's as if I'm having a relationship with the bereavement, but sometimes I turn the volume up or down depending on what else is going on because in the early days, it really featured very heavily. But as time goes on, you, you start to settle and, and start to form a life again, surprisingly. Um, you know, but the bereavement will always feature in my life. I will always be dev- devastated that Martha's not with me, you know. Well, isn't it interesting that those both can go on at yeah. once? Absolutely. Uh, that's, that's what I hear in what you're saying, that you wouldn't... Uh, you wouldn't try to get rid of that and it doesn't control everything else either. Well, I celebrate what I had, but I also celebrate what I I have, what I have left. You know, I've got my life left. Um, I would much rather it was with Martha here, but I can never have that. So I have got to just be practical and be pragmatic and think, well, all I can do it's the best with what I have left. And it's almost as if I'm living for the two of us. Um, I had almost 16 years with a wonderful, wonderful child. Um, and she taught me a lot 
So I'm incredibly grateful for that. And I'm still grateful that I can feel joy and positivity in my life despite the loss. It's a big surprise to me, you know, that I still feel this way. Because you get told, oh, you'll feel this or that, or you'll never be happy again. And, you know, I, I just found my own way, and I'm very glad that I managed to find a way where there was happiness um, in abundance still, which is quite extraordinary. And so people said you'll never be happy again, out and out? Well, I suppose, you know, you people will try to put themselves in your shoes and say, if anything happened to my child, I would you know, that my life would be over and so on. Um, but in a way, Martha's death has given me more determination to live like I've never lived it before. It's almost like her death has taught me how to live properly. Um, and when people say things like that, I think, well, there is a big difference between imagining you being in this position and actually being the person in the position. And, you know, what do they, I don't want to spend the rest of my life in abject misery and thinking my life's over because, you know, I'm 45, I've got a lot of living left to do, hopefully, and I want to make the most of it, you know. Well, I, I believe you've just expressed the heart of this show that actually the majority of people don't kind of fold their life up when they have a big loss. Mm. They my experience is the majority of people make something out of it yes that's true that's true Um, so it's it's kind of a big uh, mystery to me why we have that idea that you know that's that's the end of things but I know a lot of people do hold that opinion Uh, you know that it's that it's impossible to live through certain losses well I, for some people that may be the case, but for me, it's as though the world has, um, uh, all my senses are heightened now. It's quite extraordinary. My intuition's much stronger. Um, the world around me, the nature around me um, is abundant, and I notice these things much, much more than I did before. I always appreciated those things before, but it's kind of different now. It's mm. like I'm kind of... Um, through the pain you get access to I, I say it's like level two of life you know it's, it's quite amazing really it's very moving to me what you're saying and, and resonates with my experience and a lot of people's experience experiences that I've spoken with and I wonder how much for you you know grief is a very present experience I, I noticed in your book, if you were in a in a um, sorrowful or mournful place, you were a hundred percent there. When you were feeling hope, hundred percent there. There was a kind of quality in the book of of extreme presence. Yes, that's, that's, I've never thought about it like that before, and I'm still like that now. Um, I find it hard to plan too far ahead because I'm so in the moment now. Um, and it's a really good way to live, although, you know, in our, our kind of Western civilization, we're always planning ahead of ourselves months and weeks ahead. And um, I watch people around me, like ants, being so busy, but they're not really here. Um, and even mm. when they're here with you, they're not here because they're distracted um, in their minds or with what they think they should be doing and I wish you could have access to this without the loss. I really do wish people could kind of experience a bit of it, the good bit of it, um, because it'd be very beneficial. <laughs> you know, I heard of a of a um, Tibetan sect that uh, they they chose their leaders as children, and the oh. first work the children did was to work with dying people. Right. Um, I think that's in a way connected to what we're talking about, that sometimes a loss like this just brings such such deep presence. Uh, and that's so unexpected for people sometimes. I, I would like one day to write a book about bereavement and sit, you know, sort of called something like Another Way to Grieve, because I think death 
is a much more beautiful subject than people give it credit to be. Not, I mean, the death of a child is, is horrific and dark and it's as bad as it gets, really. But in the aftermath, in respect of humanity and human connection and so on, I have experienced the most extraordinary moments with other human beings who, just in a moment of quiet contemplation or a look across the street, um, were showing me how much they cared for me and how much hope that they had for my new life and my future. And mm. You go to a graveyard and everything's carved in stone. It's, it's this beautiful, these beautiful etchings of don't forget our loved ones. They, you know, they were here just like you are. And, um, and you go to a graveyard on Christmas Day and it's packed full of people with flowers and balloons and families and... Um, it can be a very beautiful subject if you think about it in a different way to what we've really been taught, you know. I'm thinking about uh, Oaxaca in Mexico, that uh, that on Day of the Dead, everyone is out in the streets and, you know, there's eating and drinking at the at the graveyard. Someday I want to go at that time of year. But yeah. uh, I think there are some other places in the world who maybe do better with that than the more um, European or Western-oriented, I don't know how to put it, but... Yeah, um, I know, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, if you look at Buddhism, they say decay starts at the moment you're born, you know. And um, if you embrace death as part of life, then you can really live fully. Um, I'm not scared of it. It's the only certainty in our lives, and yet we turn away from it so much. Um, but it would help a lot of people if they embraced it instead of being terrified of it. Um, so, I don't know. Maybe I'll write that book one day and we'll talk again. <laughs> yes, <laughs> for sure. I am, I'm also aware, though, that there are certain things that that help us to experience it that way, perhaps, uh, instead of just traumatically. And one other thing that stood out in your book very much is the sense of community uh, and family that it appears to me that you were quite well held relative to other stories I hear. And I want to, we're about to have a break, but I hope when we come back, we can talk about that because I do think that is a big impact. Yes, absolutely. To have a a good network around you is, it's, it's very valuable in these moments in life. Yeah. Somebody and ma- and maybe, there are, maybe there are ways you can share about how that was cultivated in your life or where it came from, uh, because I do think loneliness and grief, mm-hmm. you need time alone, but loneliness is not helpful. Absolutely. There's a real difference yeah. there, yeah. So we'll talk about that when we get back. And listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America to like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, connect with my email and all that. And to find Anne-Marie Coburn, go to whatmarthadidnext.org. Be back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. 
Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Emery Coburn, whose daughter Martha died of an accidental overdose of ecstasy at 15. And Emery, before the break, we were talking about the importance of, of uh, or, or the substantial impact of feeling supported in your grief the way it appears you did. Can you tell me more about your community and... Uh, what you think contributed to them being able to really um, hold you well, I guess, or listen well, be there well for you? Well, I think the way that I lived my life with Martha, I was always out and about around Oxford with her on our bikes and, you know, in cafes and so on. And we were well known around the area. Um, So we had a really lovely network of friends through school and through the various clubs that we had joined over the years and um, so Martha was like a surrogate daughter to a lot of my friends who didn't have children and we were very sociable and I think in the aftermath that helped me a great deal because they all came in very closely to me and held me together and um, I'm so incredibly grateful of that Um, and and they were able to share the burden of my grief and um, hold my hand and you know they also had experienced a great loss of that young girl that they all loved um so in that way i the the community held me up because we had been very very active in our community i'm sure it's that and i also have to think that you're the people that were close to you in your life were good at being with difficult feelings. You know, because what I hear is people will have very large extended communities, but then something like this happens and and people kind of say, oh, I don't know what to say, and they remove themselves somewhat. What, um, what I did early on was I, I would openly tell people how I was feeling rather than be unpredictable or... or reserved and quiet and not really saying what was on my mind I would I would share everything with them um, and I think that helped a great deal because then they knew what to expect I would tell them if I was having a really difficult day I would tell them if I was feeling a bit better or whatever was going on I would ask for their help with various practical things and um, but I would also share my fears I would I would say I'm, I'm scared I'm going to lose everyone because you know, I, I can't see this this ending, and it's so intense being around me, and so so we'd have these great discussions, and um, and I read a lot of stuff online and about bereaved parents who had lost a lot of their friends, and I would share that with my friends and give them examples. For example, I would say, "I'm worried I'll keep repeating the same stories about Martha, and you'll get bored of me." You know, so I would just. I would tell them ah, you was. just spoke it. You just spoke that fear openly. Yeah, I spoke the fears, and my friends said, "We'll never do that." And I mean, I have I have lost some friends, I've gained others, but some people I felt it was a natural progression to let them go. You know, my life has changed a bit. I've well, my significantly actually, and I've changed a lot. Um, and I think it's okay sometimes to let go of people, and I wish them well. Um, but most people are still in my life, and I have gained a lot of new people as well. So that's just life, isn't mm. it? Mm. It is, and these kind of bedrock experiences often do um, 
stand out as moments of transition that way uh, in terms of, you know, really, really seeing who supports you well in your life and putting the energy into those relationships. Yeah, absolutely. There's a real dividing line between um, the people that you take along with you and the people that you let go. Um, and I'm, I'm okay with that, you know. And none mm-hmm. of it is malice. It's all about your life's journey and really listening to your intuition. Um, an experience like this, is, it's inevitable that um, you know, you're going to want to fight a good campaign and live a very, very good life, but it's also about being realistic about the value of everything in your life as well, including the people. One thing that's very uh, evident to me, both in reading your book and getting to know you a little bit on the way to today, is that you have uh, a lot of acceptance of both tracks. The track of forever feeling... Uh, Martha's physical absence mm-hmm. and and not trying to pretend that isn't going to impact you, but also the track of going forward with the life you have. Uh, they seem very uh, like like a balanced scale, sort of, you know, both both exist. And I know you had an experience early on that set the course in a way for that. Could you talk about that that uh, kind of, illumination you had early on oh yes um at the hospital in the in the emergency room in the moment martha died and um, the words i have a future and i have a life came into my head from nowhere um and that's been my mantra ever since i have no explanation for how that could have happened in that unbelievably bleak moment but it did happen and i held i clung to that for dear life, and um, it's carved within me now. It really is. It's, it's given me strength. It's given me the hope that we all need. And, um, yeah, I think that that was a significant factor in me finding some strength from nowhere and using that, you know, and getting to where I am now. It's, very, it's simple and powerful to me. I have a future and I have a life. Yeah. Uh, and and what it makes me think about is uh, uh, on the on the day after my wife died, which was a very very different experience because we'd prepared for a long long time for it. Mm-hmm. We were pretty we were pretty young for it. That was yeah. unusual, but we were, you know, as prepared as people can be. I guess. Yeah. I, it was not out of the blue. But I remember some similar thought like, I am a person outside of my identities as wife, mother, uh, friend, you know, all these different, yeah. that, that I still existed beyond yeah. that loss. Uh, and I wonder if that is, I, I, I'm imagining that that's the surprising experience a lot of people have. Wait, I'm still here, regardless of how I I couldn't imagine that I would be. Absolutely, you know, whether you choose to get out of bed each day, your heart's still beating, your life is waiting patiently. And then on the other side of that is the profound loss of identity that happens for anyone who's lost someone I think, um, but for a mother, that's very big. And I, I wondered if you could share the 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 piece you wrote on day day two after Martha died, because it really speaks to that. Um, who am I now that I'm not parenting you yeah. every day? Yes, absolutely. My eyelids finally stopped fighting the sleep last night, and I slept deeply and soundly. I wake up early. My heart is beating, but it pangs with the loss, knowing that I will always miss her. I missed her even when she was only away for a few hours, but this type of missing is peculiar, unnatural. Getting used to her not being here goes against what every cell in my body feels. I am a mother, that is what I do. Mothers care and plan ahead, 
Mothers nurture and nag you to tidy your bedroom. Mothers tell you to shower after you've been swimming in the lake. Martha would make excuses and go to bed with the grit of the day on her. I'll never get to nag her again. I'll never get to tell her that her room is a mess. Oh, how I wish I could nag her again and hear her excuses. I'll do it later. I'll shower after kayaking tomorrow. I'd be both bemused and irritated by this. But that is a luxury now that I'll never get to practice again. I am still a mother, but not a practicing one. I have all these mothering skills which I know will always be useful in my life. But their original purpose is no longer what they'll be used for. Martha, if you're with me now, please hold my hand and guide me to show me what you want. I love you so much and don't know where to channel this love now. I have too much of it and it was all for you. I'll give some to myself now as I need it. I'll give some to family and friends and strangers. But I've still got too much left. It feels like a burden, but I know it will get easier. I I was uh, very drawn by the phrase practicing mother. Yes. Uh, that because, you know, 20 years, almost 21, October, 21 years since my wife died, I'm still very connected with her. Yeah. Uh, still, you know, we still have a relationship, very different relationship, but yeah. a relationship. I am no longer her practicing partner, uh, yes, I, <laughs> if I, you will. Yeah. And that, that really was a good way to express it in my mind. Mm-hmm. And as you said earlier about identity, suddenly I wasn't hearing the word mum directed at me anymore. Um, Martha's mum is what I was known as locally and... I really missed it, you know. So I started signing off all my emails, Anne-Louis Brackett's Martha's mum. <laughs> whenever I could write that, it made me feel better. Um, so being a mum of none is, is just, you know, nobody would choose it. But then I started to say to myself, I am enough. And I kept saying mm. that again and again. And that helped as well because I have to be enough for my own life, you know. Um so you just, you find whatever strength and whatever mantras you can within yourself, or I did anyway, and I just cling to them and say them till I believe them and that they become what I need. The other thing I'm really aware of, I, I'm sure you do lots of different things in your life I don't know about, but the things that you that you have been doing, some of them are very much a part of a continuing relationship with Martha and I was I was hoping we could talk about them for instance um, as as was mentioned earlier you kept up a a dialogue with the person who sold the drugs to her I want to hear a lot more about that because Mm -hmm. that's an unusual uh, not without precedent in our world but an unusual Mm -hmm. response and um, then also you've been doing some work, as I understand it, with uh, working to legalize drugs so that they're better monitored and, and controlled and yes. the kind of accidental losses like mm-hmm. of Martha are not as likely. Could we start by talking talking about how that came about that you ended up being um, in a correspondence with the young man who sold the drugs? Well, about eight months after she died, there was a sentencing hearing. He, he initially handed himself into the police a few days after Martha died. Um, and there was an investigation and so on that went on for months. So when it came to the sentencing of him, I went to court. And before we went upstairs into the courtroom, I found myself talking to his barrister and saying, I don't want him to go to prison. I want to meet him, I want to work with him, I want to go into schools together so others can learn from both sides of the story. Um, again, I didn't go to the court that in the moment it came out and my wishes were passed to the judge. I was then able to be involved with his I felt that he gave then the youth offending team who was advising him came to me and we were offered restorative justice and we both said yes to it. 
And to me, that felt like a great road to go down together. Um, and we started writing to one another. And through the letters, mm. I started to hear his voice. Um, and the, the initial letters were very cagey, as you would understand. But then in time, I started to hear how much he had. You know, I think there's a little bit of a problem with your line, so I'm going to repeat what you're, you said in case it wasn't mm. clear uh, to okay. to the listeners that you had the impulse to say, I don't want him to go to prison at his sentencing hearing when yeah. and you went to court. And that, uh, as I understand that, and I've heard this from other people that were drawn to restorative justice that I've inter- interviewed, that there's some way you don't want to add more loss on top. You you want that person to somehow come through it instead of uh, continue in that way. And well, you, yeah. you lent yourself to, to that. Yeah, I wanted to hear my voice directly, and, and he also was the only one who could answer certain questions for me. And give me some closure with with elements of the story um, or what had happened, and um, and I was very grateful to him for answering those questions that I needed to hear the answers to. Um, but as a young man, I said to him, "I want you to do good things with your life because you have a life, and that will be a good legacy for Martha if you go on to give something back to the world, um, because Martha's not coming back and." We're both involved in this, so um, we're both harmed by what's happened. And for me, again, it was a very natural journey of honouring Martha and honouring the life I had left, I have left. There's also something in it. I I remember how very sure-footed I was after my wife died. I'm, I'm still much, much more sure-footed than I was before her illness. Uh, That has remained. But there was something in that period of time right after that loss that was remarkably clear. And I kind of hear that in it, too, that you just knew exactly what you wanted to do. Um, We're going to take a a break, and I want to continue talking about that when we come back and also um, the other work you've, you've been doing, which might be surprising to some, uh, around the legal um, status regulations. So let's come back and talk about that in a moment. Uh, and, and listeners, you can go to my website, weatheringgrief.com or my homepage. And to find Anne-Marie Coburn, you can go to whatmarthadidnext.org. Back after the break. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with Anne Marie Coburn. We're talking about the work she's doing now. 
as a result of the loss of her daughter to a drug overdose. Before the break, we were talking about your uh, support, I guess I want to say, of the young man who sold her the drugs to go ahead and and make a make a life for himself and uh, fuel himself in a way as it sounds like you are doing with that terrible experience and take his life seriously. Uh, does that capture yeah. it? Um, yeah, and, I, and, I mean, I told him, yeah. Do you feel that he's taken that, you know, been able to keep that in his his awareness and use it to... Well, to, uh, in, my, in my correspondence to him, I made it, I made it very, very clear what Martha's death has done to my life. He got a lot of detail in my letters and um, so I, I that was one thing but, but the other thing was when he started to open up to me and um, yeah, how much he had struggled. He struggled around the anniversary of her death and so on and how much he was hounded by the media and whatever afterwards and um, when I started to hear that side of it and, and and hear a young man struggle, I then started to sort of sense that we were sharing the, the loss of Martha. It was quite extraordinary, and a peace resided within me in that moment had kind of acknowledged that her death did not come lightly to him. Mm. And I said to him, I want, I want you to have a good life, because you have a life, and, and it was as simple as that. So, again, some people might be surprised by that reaction, but I don't question it because it was just how I reacted because I'm still every day trying to survive the loss of Martha, so I can't focus too much elsewhere, really. I've got to focus on my life, you know, making the most of it. That that idea is so powerful to me that actually... Um staying focused on punishment takes away from your life. Uh, that's what yeah. I hear in that. And I think that's so sometimes misunderstood. But there, well, yeah. you're not the only person I've interviewed who has had the viewpoint that, that you've had. And then I also know you've been working on changing the legal um, atmosphere around drugs. Could you talk some about yeah. that? Well, I've been advocating um, some... Well, it was a few weeks after Martha died when I started researching into drug content, more about what wasn't being done than what was was being done. And um, I, I just read everything I could on the subject. I met people in Westminster and Parliament in the UK. Um, I spoke to officials all over the world, and it just dawned on me that you know the problem's getting worse and worse all the time. And when your eleven, fifteen-year-old daughter leaves your house on a Saturday morning, and all the is a pair of empty shoes, you know there's something wrong with what's in place. The laws are meant to keep our children safe, and these laws are not, you know. Mm. Um, legal regulation means we could get some control of it. It takes it out of the harm that our hands and passes it to medical professionals um, who are qualified to deal with these substances. Um, had Martha taken something that was labelled with dosage and um, ingredients, you know, she would still be alive today. You know, nobody wants to think the children taking drugs, but had Martha taken something licensed, she wouldn't have died, and that's, that's for sure. Um, so all my campaigning is about an open and honest dialogue on these subjects um, in order to reduce the harm. So it's not even about being for or against drugs. It's been for, it's for life, you know, and I don't want other youngsters or anyone to die of curiosity. Mm. Really. So I, I, I got Martha. you know get getting to know Martha through your book. Uh, yeah. You know your book is laced with really beautiful, beautiful pictures of her. I watched some video of her. Um, yeah. If I if I had to sum her up from a from a very from someone who didn't know her, full of life and curiosity. Absolutely, and I'm going to have that carved on her gravestone, which I haven't actually arranged yet, but I want 
something along the lines of she spent every second of her life in uncompromising curiosity. And, I, you know, that's, that's, I think to be curious is to be human. It's a wonderful, wonderful trait in people. So, yes, yeah, she was curious. <laughs> and in that one instance... It didn't serve her, but I feel it did serve her life very much. Uh, Absolutely. It did. I mean, whether it was tasting spicy food or having an oyster or swimming or all the traveling we did where, you know, she had a very short but happy life and it was abundant. And I'm very glad about that, that she she really lived fully while she was here. Um, of course, I wish her curiosity hadn't led her to... Where, how, how she died, but, you know, that is what happened in the end. She she died of a, an overdose, and that's, you know, it's horrific to think of that. But, um, but there you go, that's, that's it. Well, but it, it does make so much sense to me that then you would want to remove, you wouldn't want to remove the curiosity uh, mm. from anyone but you yeah. would want to remove the danger. Of course I want children to go out into society and to be as safe as they possibly can. Um, but when you can get something cheaper than you, you, that you can get a can of soda for, then there's something wrong with the world. Um, and that's why I'm campaigning relentlessly. I've been over to the UN. I've been over to Washington with a, with a campaign. Um, it's exhausting, but... You know, we're getting there. Um, and in the UK, we have 50 deaths every week from drug-related deaths, and 50 families become me, and that's not acceptable, you know. Mm. They're, they're avoidable deaths, precious lives. Um, I, I'm, I'm frightened to think what the, what the statistic is in the US. I think it's something like 120 every day. I might be wrong, but I think it's something like that, and that's... And it's, That's it's a, 120 to too many people. Oh, one death, one too many, yeah. I mean, if you look at Portugal where they decriminalized drugs 15 years ago, uh, three overdose deaths per million, um, and in the UK it's 44.6. Mm. So that alone tells you they're doing something right because they're being visionary, they're not, you know, they're not judging people's choices, um, but they're actually taking positive action and the they're making a big impact in improving people's lives and improving the communities based on using the facts. Well, the other thing I'm aware of is that uh, the proliferation of prisons in my country is truly staggering. And a huge number of the people in our prisons, it's drug-related. Yeah. And and, um, those lives are lost in another way often because people never recover from that experience. So uh, Yeah, I mean, the prisons over here as well. I go in regularly and I visit, you know, tenancy units and so on in the prisons. And there's a lot of people in there who have had the most traumatic lives. And, you know, there's got to be another level to the system where we can nurture these people and help to educate them and, and to sort of, help them to give back to the world one day but a lot of them have had incredible trauma in their lives um, and that's why they, they've taken drugs often because they're trying to numb the pain or they sell drugs because often they have low academic attainment and they have no other way of making money and I'm not condoning it but it is what happens um, so, so we need to look as a society we need to look at all these projects around the world that are working effectively and look at, and look at what we can do and realize that a lot of addiction is based on trauma. Mm. Yeah. I feel that's actually uh, a good place to circle back to this last piece of writing I'd like you to share because in it I hear how you are continuing to be Martha's mother Yeah. by doing work that came out of the experience of losing her and the experience, of course, of being her mother. <laughs> um, yes. would, you, would you share that piece uh, about from day 80? Yes, yes, okay. 
There's no name for someone like me. I'm not able to sum up my circumstances succinctly in one simple word. Surely there must be more me's around. I'd like to think there aren't too many, though, as that would be a discomforting thought, too. I'm not a widow or a divorcee. What could you call a single mother who has lost her only child? When a woman's husband dies, she is still married to him, even though she is a widow. In the same way, I am still a mother. Have, have That was not too long into grieving. Have you come across any way to call yourself? Or has it become less important to have a way to capture that? Um, I think when it featured a lot in the early days when I was first socializing again and worried about answering ordinary questions, um, I, I just wanted the one word. And, you know, if you say you're a widow, it's incredible, instant understanding. Um, but I would have to say I'm a single mother who's lost her only child, you know, when people say, you have, to, you have to all. say the whole sentence, huh? Yeah. Or I, yeah. Would avoid, I would avoid it and make excuses, but then in some ways I feel like I'm, I'm not giving Martha the kind of honour that she deserves for having been here for almost 16 years. But I don't uh, that's know. A I, good, I, I'm going to have to interrupt because we're at the end of time, but that's, that's a good way to sum it up. Uh, okay. A single mother who's lost her only child. Thank you for being with me today. Next week, I'll welcome Belle Ruth Napperstek, whose seminal work with guided imagery has been used to address trauma internationally. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.